You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Receive, Finding Freedom Through Healing. In this series from the Gospel of Matthew, we learn beautiful insights into the heart of God, the nature of His grace, and the pathway of faith that leads us to freedom. My name is Julie, and we are so glad to have you here today. You can follow along with today's reading and sermon in your bulletin, which also has a list of upcoming events on the back, like our Redeemed Marriage and Women's Clothing Swap events this weekend. And stay tuned for an update on Affordable Christmas, an event that we first introduced you to back in the spring. You uh, will be seeing more information about that soon. If you've got our free app, you can see many more opportunities and info in the app version of our bulletin. Now hear the word of the Lord. Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed and instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you all. My name is Jonah. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, got a, two quick announcements. One, well, it's really a joke and an announcement. I've just ruined my own joke. Um, uh, but first, anybody know what, why today is an important day? Anybody? The Colts? Someone say the Colts? There's going to be prayer after the service for Colts and Bengals fans. This is the start of the NFL season. Me and Pastor Jeremy are going to be facilitating that time. This is the peak optimism for Colts and Bengals fans right now. What are we, two hours before kickoff? Uh, Bengals have the afternoon game uh, so we can all wait and watch them get pounded by Seattle. So uh, we'll pray for you. Ricky says we got a chance. Uh, What was I saying? Why am I here? Uh, Church. Right. The big announcement, though, is today is Pastor Bobby Gillis' birthday. And where are you? He's in the back again. It's wave your hand for the people, Bobby. Yep. Bobby's 73 years old and he's <laughs> looking good, taking care of himself. It's just unusual that one of the staff, uh, their birthdays fall on a Sunday. And so he's working on his birthday. And I just wanted to say in front of you all how thankful I am for Bobby. Um, grateful for your friendship. You're a good husband, a good pastor. Uh, three people agree with me. <laughs> and so. Just really thankful for all the ways you sacrifice and, and leave and serve in Christ's church. So love you, Bobby, and happy birthday. Uh, so we're, we're diving back into uh, Matthew. The joke was going to be about football, and somebody said it. So, you know, if you think I'm a liar because I only had one announcement and not the joke, the joke was the football. I try not to lie here intentionally. Uh, so anyway, I also tend to be a little bit reductionistic for the sake of making a point. Uh, which I will do several times today, let the reader understand. Um, so there's, it's happened more than this, but in essence, I would argue that throughout church history, 
there's been kind of two big distortions that have pushed the church one way or the other, or two kind of core temptations that give birth to a whole number of other things. What makes it complicated is both of them use verses. So, you know, we're arguing over what verse matters over this verse. Or, so I just want to talk about some of the two, the two ditches, the two temptations that most people fall into, and we've seen denominations created over it. Uh, the first is where I'm guessing most of us would land, and if you got on the internet and Googled a certain number of words and Sojourn Church came up and you're like, okay, I guess I'll visit that church. This is probably you, or this is probably at least the one that you're most tempted to. Maybe you've heard it as a head in the clouds Christianity or being too heavenly minded. Um, for for mo- many of us, if, you're like, if you've been to Sojourn for a while, this is almost certainly you. Uh, there's one tribe that prefers an abstract conceptual faith and by abstract and conceptual, I mean we like talking about things that are hard to touch or hard to hold. So for us, when we say the gospel, most of us mean the gospel of eternal salvation or the forgiveness of sins, which is good, and it's a real thing, but it's abstract. So we, we see people come to faith here often, and when you get baptized, we give you a gift It's got a Bible, it's got a journal, it's got some initial tools to help you get started. But we don't give you a jar of salvation, right? So that you can't like take it out of the bag and be like, here's my salvation. I received salvation today and I'm going to put it on my shelf. And every time I'm worried that I've gone too far, I'm going to look at my shelf and say, I still have my salvation, right? Like salvation is kind of an out there conceptual thing. And so faith that gets overly focused on this. It gets distorted, and it becomes fundamentally about waiting. And not in the good biblical kind of waiting, but more so everything stops kind of meaning anything around us, and we just wait for that one day that Jesus will come, and he'll make everything better. So we just kind of wait for this out there thing to come one day when Jesus comes back. So Christianity, in this kind of ditch of overly emphasizing or exaggerated emphasis on heaven and eternity... It becomes almost primarily doctrine, truth, information about God. So that's kind of the one temptation. More Bible studies, more waiting, more thinking. Let's do another whatever, sermon series on the forgiveness of sins or penal substitutionary atonement or these conceptual things. And then the other ditch, perhaps you can guess, is not so much to have our heads in the clouds, but to have our hands in the world. So these people use the Bible too. And they'll look at some of the commands of Jesus, just like the other group will look at some of the commands of Jesus and note the emphasis on the word some. They'll look at some of them and conclude it's time to get busy. So they'll look at the verses that show Jesus feeding the poor people. So what should we go do? Feed the poor people, right? Feed the poor. Uh, Jesus promised justice. So we go and we work and fight for justice. Whatever it is, Jesus says this thing is the way it should be, and so we go work to make that thing the way it should be. And so here, Christianity becomes too concrete. It becomes fundamentally about changing the world. Uh, what's funny about, like, I, I'm always wary of mission statements that say we're going to end world hunger in our lifetime. And I was like, Jesus said you wouldn't. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a verse where he says you'll always have the poor and hungry with you, right? Like, we're... We're working hard and diligently on a fundamentally sinking ship, which, you know, we're playing violin as the Titanic's going down kind of a thing, and that's, that's just a reality. So in that world, 
the over, you know, our hands too deeply into the, the dirt or the stuff of the earth. Um, doctrine isn't so important. Our, our future isn't so important because we're here now. We've got work to do now. The problem with uh, a Christianity that's trying to allow the Bible to be authoritative, and if you're wondering what does that mean, it means when you disagree with the Bible, the Bible wins. So when we say what's the authority of Scripture mean, it means when you disagree with the Bible, the Bible wins. When we're, when we're trying to be those kinds of people in that kind of church, we will be forced to learn how to live between two worlds. This world and the next world. Life here and now versus eternal life in the kingdom of God. And again, entire denominations have been created. Churches have split over which one of these worlds to emphasize or which ditch to, of these should we fall into. And the questions become, well, should we focus on heaven or should we focus on earth? And the one side will say, well, what good does it do to go to heaven with a, or to die with a full belly and excellent medical coverage if you're going to go to hell? And other people will say, well, you can't hear the gospel if you have an empty stomach. And so should we focus on heaven or should we focus on earth? Or the real, the hot button one now, this is the thing. If you're like, well, I wonder what he gets emails about. This, what I'm about to say to you, is what I get emails about. Should we focus on salvation, which is the easy win in our crowd? Or should we focus on social justice, which is, I guess, the liberal Marxist infiltration of the church, even though it's been in the Bible for 6,000 years or something. My point is, we have all of these tensions that we have, that it seems that we are called to live into, or at least you can make an argument from, from the scriptures. Salvation or social justice, heaven or earth. And into that tension, Jesus has a wonderfully simple, powerful response. He says, yes. Yes. That, no, I think that's an appropriate reaction to chuckle a little bit. There's things that we get so confused on, and Jesus, it seems to me at times he's saying, you know, we live in a world where two things can be important. Or two things can be a problem. Or somebody, I, I don't want to get into politics, I'm just a little riled up all of a sudden. Like, somebody on the left, here's where you know you're captivated by ideology. If somebody points out something about the person you are all for uh, that isn't good, and your immediate, re, immediate response is, well, what about the person on the other side who did something even worse? It's like, I live in a world where both of those can be wrong. Both of those things can be, just in the same way, more than one thing can be good. More than one thing can be true, and more than one thing can be beautiful. So we left Jesus at the end of chapter 7. Anybody remember what Matthew 5 through 7 was? I didn't hear what anybody said. Sermon on the Mount. It's the big one, you guys. It's Jesus' big sermon. And in chapter 8, we get this kind of quick transition. There's no warm-up. We just get something very different, and we start feeling the tension that I've talked about. So verse, or chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. He was up on the mountain doing the Sermon on the Mount. There's these large crowds there because he was teaching about incredibly important things. The heavenly crowd loves Jesus on the mountaintop. If, if you've read some of the Old Testament, uh, you'll know that in the Bible, the mountaintop is where revelation from God comes. There's this great line of people who go up the mountain to receive something important, significant from God, to mediate between God and people. Can anybody think of one person who went up on a mountaintop to get information from God? Moses. Yes! I'm so proud of you guys. 
And you got the Ten Commandments, right? A big deal. So Jesus is going up to the mountaintop. And, and in 5 through 7, as he's entered this long line of prophets who went up the mountain to give revelation, he gives the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is acting like a, a prophet philosopher. He's talking about salvation, life of the age to come. There's powerful eternal truths. They're glorious. We love it. It's some of his most important words he's ever spoken. And the heavenly crowd loves the Sermon on the Mountain because in some ways it's wonderfully conceptual. It's, it's so important and powerful and invitational. And it's a, it's a bit abstract. So chapter 7 ends with Jesus saying, whoever builds his life on my truth is like a man who builds a house on the rock. And listen, if anyone can explain to me how to build a house on truth, let me know. You, you're going to dig a trench and you're going to pour truth down instead of the footers? And what do you mean exactly here? And how do I, you see what I mean? Like, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just a little abstract. And then he comes down the mountain in chapter 8. This is both literally and figuratively. Literally, he's from the geogra he's geographically, his altitude is high. He's on a mountain and he's geographically going down into a valley. But also more metaphorically, spiritually, he's talking about these eternal matters. And then he comes down and begins to get his hands dirty. Chapters 8 and 9, which we'll be in for a few weeks now, they show us the heart of God and some of the rhythms of the life of grace and faith. And they are very, most literally, dirty. God's hands get in the dirt and the filth of humanity. And if, if you're soaked in the story of the Bible, this shouldn't surprise you because our story, the story of humanity, begins with God's hands in the dirt. You have, you, how often do you remember that that's what you're made of? In the beginning, God, who is spirit, squeezed together, I don't know precisely how, dirt, and then he breathed his spirit into it. He, he breathed on the dirt and it became an us. It became a human. So from the very beginning, the Bible affirms that we are this wonderful mixture of spirit and flesh, the stuff of heaven and the stuff of earth. Dirt infused with divine presence. Heaven or earth, Jesus says yes. So if you read 5 through 9, and that's crazy, you guys. Be careful being that kind of Christian who would read four chapters of the Bible, right? Like, let's not be extreme, but should you choose to do it on one long weekend... Five through seven is so, it'll just feel like spiritual whiplash because five through seven, you get all of these truths in this beautiful invitational language. And then look at what happens as he's coming down the mountain. Verse two, it says, suddenly, suddenly, out of nowhere, a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Uh, I don't, so a leper wouldn't have been allowed to just hang out in the crowd. That's where I think some of the suddenly comes. I like to think of him jumping out of a bush or something, you know, like or Zacchaeus was in a tree and he rappels down and is like, Jesus, heal me. And now imagine if you're one of the people following Jesus and he's just talked about eternal salvation and, you know, Christian virtue ethics and how the soul is transformed. And then a leper is like, heal me. Like, Come on, buddy. Don't we have more important things to worry about? I think that's maybe what our tribe would think. What's the problem here, guys? Hey, let's talk about heaven because who cares if you have leprosy if you're not going to go to heaven? And what does Jesus do? He touches him. When's the last time this guy was touched? I know you're lonely. 
Some of you are lonely. But you're allowed out. Lepers wouldn't have been allowed in here. Lepers wouldn't have gone to the grocery store. What did it, what did it mean that God literally touched the leper, knowing he could catch the disease? They didn't touch him because that's how you catch leprosy. And it, <laughs> this is the spiritual whiplash. In a few short verses, Jesus goes from talking about eternity, heads in the clouds, to then literally having his hands on a leper. A, a man who's physically isolated, almost certainly emotionally and socially broken, is healed by the very hands of God. He could have spoke. He could have said, stay over there, I'll heal you from here, just in case. And we're going to talk about a Roman official here in a second. He heals this guy's servant, long range, just the power of his voice. But God gets his hands dirty and touches him. Verse 6, Roman official comes up to him. Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Talk about some of this next week. Notice Jesus, If you can read this in your Bible. We're going through a lot of chapter 8 today. Jesus doesn't say, at least he's not a leper. Imagine the temptation. You ever done that, compared your pain to somebody else's? I would, I, I would pray for this, but Susie's got it worse. Could be worse. Jesus heals this man's servant long distance with the power of his word, even though the Roman was a cultural outsider, even though this was crossing racial lines through the power of his word. He enters Peter's mother-in-law's house right after that. Again, an outsider, a woman, and he heals her. Chapters 8 and 9 are Jesus over and over and over getting his hands dirty in the brokenness of humanity, not just in the information, not just in the, the concepts, but tangibly, physically. 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7 in some ways teach us what to believe, and 8 through 9 show us what it looks like as we believe that. What does the life of faith look like? What does the life of freedom look like? And I think Jesus is trying to show us that it begins with healing. From the mountain to the valley, we have a God who cares about all of us and all we are. We see a God who has his heads in the clouds and his hands in the dirt. And one of the big implications, there's lots that could be said. There's three powerful stories in this section of chapter 8. There's lots that could be said, but when I think about our church, our history at Sojourn, this part of the country, one of the big things that strikes me is, is that we, we really need healing for our mission, our sense of what has God put us here for. Because I think the kind of white, reformed, evangelical church has been a little sick the last 50 years or so. Maybe less. I, in this, I know I'm being a little bit general here. Um, I would argue it's been too rigid and too exclusive. And by exclusive, I, I mean narrow. What, what our, the sense of our mission has been has been too small. So I promise you, I'm going to ask a crowd participation question right now, and I promise you it's not a trick. The last service thought it was a trick and nobody answered and it was uncomfortable. So here's the question. Does our eternal salvation matter? Yes. Yes. It absolutely does. That can only be part of our mission, though. That cannot be the entirety of the mission. Too many of us are only interested 
in spiritual salvation to the exclusion of the care of the earth? Does the gospel of forgiveness matter? Yes. Amen. Absolutely. But let's go back to the beginning of our story. When God put his hands in the dirt, he did not hand us an evangelism track. Which isn't to say there's something wrong with evangelism. Don't hear things I'm not saying. When God made us, he, in essence, handed us a rake and a shovel. And he said, take care of this place. Theologians call it the creation mandate. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it. Dominion is wise exercise of authority. Bring it to life. Take care of it. Order this place. We are intended to be gardeners and farmers, taking care of a planet and living in a, a well-ordered society. When we abandoned both fellowship with God and the creation mandate, God got to work. So now we go announcing that Christ has come and he's lived perfectly for us. What does it say about our humanity? That God, God's rescue plan would involve God putting skin on. What does God think about your body? That he would allow himself to be contained within one. He lives a perfect life for us. He carries our sin and, and burdens for us. He rises from the dead for us. And now we get to announce that fellowship with God is restored in Christ. That's evangelism. That's good news. People need to hear that. You can be healed. You can be restored to relationship with God. You can be forgiven. We have to see what that meant for Jesus too, though. He came announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. You don't see Jesus coming into towns saying, I've got good news. I'm going to die on the cross to pay your sin debt. He says, I've got good news. The kingdom of God is at hand, which is a real geographic place. It's, it's a physical place. And, and the point is, the Christian gospel promises that both our bodies and our souls will be healed. Jesus cares about our eternal destinies, and he cares about our physical bodies, our physical realities. You cannot read Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. We, I don't know how you read the Bible at all and, and not hear just a resounding declaration that God cares about your physical body. He cares about your health. He cares about your neighborhood. He cares about the environment. He cares about animals. He cares about all of it. And in this gospel, he promises both salvation and justice, both healing of our souls and healing of our bodies. This mission wouldn't be to an exclusive group of people or place. It was for the Gentiles. It was for men. It was for women. It was for mountains. It was for valleys. It was, it was for all we are. So when you think of the mission of God, what do you think of? Or maybe to put it in a little bit different way, who do you think of? Do you think of the lost? Or do you think of the sick? Do you think of the mission being sharing the gospel of forgiveness, building the kingdom of God? Imagine, imagine you're a doctor. Some of you don't have to imagine because you are doctors. But, so I, by vocation, I am a Christian, right? Like, you all pay me to do this stuff. And so, when people have questions about faith or their Christianity, they come and talk to me. And it, and I've had this conversation, it's not just with doctors, it's with any, you know, anybody who spent a lot of money getting educated, big student loan debts or something like that. Uh, you know, imagine you're a doctor, and then you come to faith, you come to believe Jesus is Lord, and you want to join him in his work of making all things new, and then you feel this tension, and you come to me or somebody like me, and you'll say something like, shouldn't I be preaching the gospel? All of the student loan debt I racked up, 
I should have gone to seminary. Oh, now I'm stuck at the hospital all day when I could be doing meaningful work. And what, what does that mean? It means I could be out proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, talking to people about spiritual matters. All that money I spent doing this thing, and now I wish I could go and build the kingdom of God. Why do we think this way? Because we have a distorted sense of mission. We have a distorted sense of God's gifts to us and what God is sending us to do out in the world. How Christ-like is it to enter into the vocation of healing? What will I do with my time? I will heal the amazing bodies that God has given to us in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? I slip somebody a track? Like if you're a surgeon, do triple bypass, and you're like, Larry, your heart's going to give out eventually. So... Where, if you died tonight, where would you go? You know, like, I'm not saying if you doctor well enough, then you can really do the work of evangelism. And again, I'm not saying don't do evangelism. Don't invite people to trust Christ for their eternal salvation. But what did Jesus say to the leper? In verse 4, he says to the leper, don't tell anyone about this. Uh, is that not a little bit funny to anybody? Don't, what? I thought I was going to tell him. So instead, go to the priest and let him examine you, which there's a good, like we do another sermon on what Jesus is doing here. If you've got a study Bible, it'll probably explain it to you. It's interesting what, what's going on here. But for Jesus in this moment, healing the man was enough. The man said, Lord, would you heal me? And apparently, that was enough for Jesus. That, maybe that was roughly a mustard seed worth of faith there, that he could look to Jesus and say, Lord. And Jesus didn't say, now, no, do you mean the Greek sense of Lord or the Hebrew sense of Lord? Or do you... And Jesus was like, listen, man, you asked me for healing and you called me Lord. I'm going to touch you and heal you. Let, let your changed life be a witness, a testimony to the cleansing power of God. You see how, you see how wide open this makes all of our vocations, all of the ways that we do to go spend our time. God's called me to do this here, and I'm going to do it well, right in front of me, because what's right in front of me really matters. If, they, if there's opportunity to talk about eternal matters, I will do that, and because it really matters. But we have to stop thinking that preaching is the only thing that matters. Some of you are getting into debt over seminary, and you should just bail on it and go get a job. You know, like, it's not for you. Some of you are getting a whole bunch of debt in medical school, and you really shouldn't be a doctor, right? Like, if, you're, <laughs> if your friends won't let you babysit, don't be a doctor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if, like, if your friends won't let you borrow their car, that's a good indication you shouldn't go to medical school. My, my point is, Christians can do good work when they're doing it in the name of Jesus, whatever it is that's right, right in front of them. And Go read these stories and see what Jesus asks of these people. It's basically him saying, will you receive healing? Here's a check. And what do I require of you? To build up all this faith and power to hold a check in your hands. How much effort does it require to receive a check for $7 billion? As a church, we're trying to grow in embracing all of God's mission. We're not going to stop proclaiming forgiveness of sins. We're not going to stop appealing to you to trust Christ. Just think about the last few weeks of the life in this church. Uh, we did Summer Academy. 
which if, if you don't know what that was, Summer Academy was something that uh, a small group of people put in a lot, a lot, a lot of time, dozens and dozens of hours to help kids get ready to go to kindergarten through first, second grade. Why would we do something like that? Who cares if you can read if you're going to hell? Who cares if you have a bad job if you're going to hell? A couple years ago, we, I sat down with Pastor Lachlan, and we talked to the principal of Slate Run Elementary. And we said, what's a problem you have that you feel like nobody's paying attention to? And she said, she got choked up and said, uh, kids aren't ready to go to first grade. And if they're behind in first grade, they won't catch up by eighth grade. And in essence, she was saying, if these kids don't come to first grade ready, I mean, it is, it's not dooming them, but they are going to be behind for a decade plus. We want, to su- we want to support families in local schools. Education matters. We want these kids to have a good life. We want to be an ally to this community. So we invest in education. Fresh Stop Market. We've been doing that for several years. Why would a church care about providing good, healthy, affordable food to people? It's hard to be human on a sugar-only diet. So Some of y'all who've been here for a while know some of like the, the health stuff I've been through. And I'll just tell you, uh, if you're perpetually tired, what happens when you pray? You fall asleep. And that can be sweet at first. Like if you fall asleep when you pray, maybe that's God saying, take a rest, sister. You're running too hard. You know, no one ever gets angry at their child for falling asleep in their arms. A good dad isn't going to rebuke a child for falling asleep in their arms. Except, you know, maybe when the kid's 45 <laughs> and should be at work. That'd be weird. My point is, if you, ne- if you neglect the care of your body, it will affect everything in your life. If you're tired all the time, you won't pray. It'll affect the way you engage meaningfully in relationships if you're carrying around shame and insecurities. And, and we don't want to doom people to a life of that simply because of where the child was born. They had no vote living here, no vote living in a food desert. They didn't get to decide to live three miles from a Kroger. I don't know, we could do this for a long time. Sojourn Emergency Response Team. You see them walking around with cool t-shirts. We got a whole uh, list of medical professionals that signed up to help provide medical care in service in case an emergency happens. Why would we care about that? On and on. Bodies matter to God. Our health matters to God. The world, the earth matters to God. Yes, souls matter. If you feel this temptation rising up and you just say, I think he's saying heaven doesn't matter. Just see that as a symptom of the problem, of your distorted ears. I'm trying to help us become a people that know how to live between two worlds, that can say eternity matters and today matters, heaven matters and earth matters. If you want to learn more about your body, what does God say about your body? What does the Bible say about your body? How does your body influence your relationship with God? We've got uh, Six months worth of classes coming out for men and women in our spiritual formation schools. You can read about them in the bulletin. There's sign-ups there in the bulletin. And we're going to be talking about our bodies. Because, again, your body matters to God. We must see the stuff of earth as part of his mission. 
And this is going long. I'm sorry. I'm just pressing a little bit further. In the leper, Jesus heals a social outsider. Again, he had no relationships. Um, in the Roman, he's healing a racial outsider. He's crossing boundaries. In the woman, Peter's mother-in-law, he's healing a cultural outsider. In each instance, Jesus is healing a body to restore community. He's healing a body to draw people together and break down artificial barriers. And this should show us how broad the scope of God's mission is. It includes both our eternal destinies and our physical, social, cultural realities. All of this matters to God. And so all of it must matter to us. And the reality is, some of you guys are going to be more into one thing than another. And you probably have a sense of where you're at on this. Some of us will be drawn to physical matters, some to spiritual. And we have to become a people who learn how to live life in this tension. We have to be aware of our temptation to be reductionistic and antagonistic. So when you get all mad at the social justice people, maybe take a second and say, what, could this be exposing some kind of inadequacy in my own life or my own theology? When you're the, my social justice people, when you get all mad at the doctrine and eternal salvation people, maybe you should wrestle with, is this exposing something inadequate about me? Because we're called to be a body where we need to embrace and learn to appreciate multiple perspectives on the mission of God. In whichever position we're in, we have to learn to embrace the tension of differing priorities. So, look, right after these stories, one person says to Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, just so you know, I'm homeless. He says, foxes have homes and birds have a nest, but I've got nowhere to sleep at night. So he's like, that's great if you want to follow me, but I'm homeless. Yes, your body and the stuff of earth matters. And at the same time, Jesus doesn't seem too interested in your mailing address. There's a cost to following Jesus. We can't be so consumed by our physical realities that we neglect our eternal destinies. Then another person asks Jesus for time to go to his father's funeral. An understandable request, if you ask me. Jesus, I would love to follow you and join this mission, but I want to go bury my father. Jesus says, that story is over. It's time to move on. We've got work to do. Difficult passages. I think the principle that is being displayed here is that when we reduce the mission of God, we always miss the mission of God. Well, if it's all about bodies, then I'll go to the funeral. But if it's all about the mission, I'll skip the funeral. If it's, if it's all about the earth, then I'll make a really nice house. If it's all about the mission, I won't have any house at all. Well, wh which one is it? Because listen, the same Jesus who went to great lengths to heal also says, don't worry about the funeral, who also cries at his friend's funeral. It's not saying death doesn't matter to Jesus. It's saying we have to keep ourselves from being distracted from following him. And, and we can even have good, churchy, biblical-sounding things that can distract us from following him. So if you reduce God's mission to eternal salvation, you'll miss the sick person in front of you. And you may feel the temptation to say disease is un unimportant to the state of someone's soul unless you're the one with the disease. On the other hand, if you reduce God's mission to social justice or physical healing, you'll miss the invitation into God's eternal kingdom. And so we as a people must learn how to embrace both of these. And I think it's in his death and resurrection that Jesus gives us a, a horrific 
yet beautiful picture of how we do this. He ensures our eternal salvation and forgiveness. How? Through his physical body. One of the first heresies addressed by the early church was this belief that Jesus didn't have a real body. He just looked human, but he didn't have a real body. And you'll see the New Testament authors emphasizing over and over, Jesus was crucified in the flesh. He was made alive in the flesh. So in the death of Jesus, heaven and earth meet. At the cross, we see the scope of God's mission. He will bear your sin and your shame. He will bear your rebellion and your suffering. He will carry away your guilt and your tears. He will lead you into an eternal kingdom where you will have a new body and live in a new earth. You will be spirit and flesh purified, the perishable traded for the imperishable. Should we care about salvation or social justice? Yes. Should we care about heaven or earth? Yes. If, if you're unsure of the state of your soul, bring your soul to Jesus and ask him for healing. If your body is broken, come to Jesus, ask for healing, and receive it. And, and every week we root ourselves in this beautiful tradition, this, this sacred promise that we rehearse to remind ourselves that God is near and he's willing to get his hands in the dirt. And so, so look at the imagery here. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He broke it, gave thanks for it, broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. Now you realize Jesus could have written a song and said, sing this song whenever you are together as often as you sing in remembrance of me. He could have given us a different means by which to remember what he was calling us to. But instead he says, take this thing that you can feel it, you can smell it, you can taste it, you can chew it. And this is how I want you to remember what I've done for you. Take this, eat it. Remember what I've done for you. He's appealing to your body. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. In communion, heaven and earth collide. We have the simplest of things representing these divine cosmic realities. And what must God be communicating that he's saying, what do I want for you? I, I want you to take this, eat it, drink it, Remember, I'm with you. Take who I am and let it become who you are. And so as you come to communion, our tradition is to rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. There'll, there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. Maybe just take it like a tick slower. Um, maybe wait until after the songs to pick your kids up so you can slow down and experience this a little bit more. Take the bread and smell it. Oh, that might look weird. Who cares? We're all kind of weird here. Do you realize what we're doing here? We're remembering that somebody rose from the dead and is making a whole new earth for us. Like, the whole thing is weird. So who cares if we're weird for a minute? Smell the bread. Smell the wine. Smell the juice. Chew it slowly and say, God, what does this mean? That this is your body and this is your blood and it is becoming me. You care about my soul. You care about my body. Show me what this means. If you're not a Christian, the, the invitation for you is so simple. Come and trust Christ. If you want to know what that means, there'll be men and women up front afterwards that would love to pray for you. If you need someone to pray for your body, we believe in the power of healing and we've seen it happen in this church. Men and women will be up front and we'll anoint you with oil and ask God to heal you. Is, is your soul broken? Come to Jesus. Do you need forgiveness? 
Come to Jesus. Do you need healing? Come to Jesus. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.